0: All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, we're in verse 1. It says, I say, then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I am an Israelite, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and digged down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Let's have a word of prayer, and I'll get right into this. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time that we can open your word, Lord. I just pray that you, you give us understanding, Lord, that you give us wisdom as we look into your word. and I just pray that um, you give me the words to speak, Lord. But I also pray that you make me invisible in this. We want to see you high and lifted up. We want to learn from you this morning, God. We're just thankful that you've given us your word, as you've given us understanding, that you've given us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we're so grateful for that, Lord. In the name of Christ, amen. So in way of review, I'm not going to do a lot of review because I'm going to give a little overview of the chapter two, but we're in our section here where Paul is dealing with the question of the Jew. Um, He's he's dealt with the gospel to the Roman uh, which were Gentiles and the obvious question would have been at that time was what what about the Jew and he's been dealing with that in chapters 9 10 and he's uh, again dealing with it here in 11 and that's what we're dealing with right here so that's the portion of scripture we're in right now a little overview of the chapter is in this chapter we'll see the rejection of the Jews not only them rejecting God but God rejecting them But also in that, we'll see that even in their mass rejection, there has been a remnant that did not bow the knee to Baal. We'll also see that that the Gentiles have been grafted in, and they're continually being grafted in until this day. Now Paul has kind of flirted with this idea in the previous couple chapters, but he'll deal with it explicitly in this chapter here. We'll also see the grafting back in of the Jews at a later date. He says, after the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Then Paul concludes his doctrinal portion of Romans. Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11, he teaches us doctrine. Once you get to chapter 12, he starts teaching. He says, therefore, all this doctrine I taught you, therefore, act like this. So the practical portion of it. So he finishes up his doctrinal portion of this with verses 33 through 36, where he says, oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out for who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counselor or who hath first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again for of him and through him and to him are all things to him to whom be glory forever, amen what a way to end your doctrinal portion of scripture there so with that brief overview I want to give us a little outline too Romans uh, chapter 11 verses 1 through 10 deal with the remnant of Israel and the blinding of the rest. Verses 11 through 24 deal with the salvation for the Gentiles. Verses 25 through 32, it's God's plan for Israel after the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. And verses 33 through 36, we see Paul marvels at the plan of God in salvation. So let's jump into our text. Obviously, you know, I typically have three points. Uh, I got three points today. Um, The pretty simple points is God's people, God's foreknown people, and God's reserved people. So our first point here is God's people. And let's look back at verse 1 here. He says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? Now this is a, a legit question because remember, Paul has been developing this since the start of Romans 9. And I know I brought this out a lot, but I'm going to bring it out again. It's because of his statement in Romans chapter 8 and verses 38 and 39 why he's been dealing with this question. Remember he says in Romans 8, 38 and 39, he says, For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And remember the time that the audience is in. Remember the time period that this that that Paul is writing to his audience here. They were in a time when God was actually about to destroy Jerusalem. Jesus had already told his disciples when you see Jerusalem surrounded flee into the mountains because those armies the Roman armies would destroy Jerusalem and everyone in it. That was his warning. And who was in Jerusalem? The Jews. So if all the Jews were God's people and in the love of God, how could a covenant keeping God destroy them as he said he was going to? And that's what Paul's been dealing with and I believe he proved it in Romans 9 and he continues on in his multifaceted approach to deal with this hard subject. And though he has used many Old Testament scriptures through the past two chapters, right? And we've we've went back and we've saw him using all these Old Testament scriptures, we went back to the Old Testament and saw it and he'll continue to use Old Testament scriptures going forward, but right here he makes an argument that I think cannot be overlooked. He says, Hath God cast away his people? God forbid I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Jacob, or the tribe of Benjamin. I don't know how Jacob popped into my mouth. So just in case you think for a second that I'm saying God has cast away his people, remember... I am one of his people. The one writing this letter to you has not been cast away. What's amazing about this is Paul technically wasn't a child of God until after the new covenant was ratified. Remember he was converted in the book of Acts. Before that he was living under the old system and persecuting Christians and he was not born again. Now, I want want us to realize something about this. I do not believe Paul is saying that every Jew was God's people. I think he's proved that in Romans chapter 9, did he not? When he says they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because of because they are of the seed of Abraham are they all his children. We have to notice this distinction. Just because they were born in the right family, in the right line, with the right genealogy, it did not mean they were the people of God. People still make this mistake today, don't they? They say the Jews are God's chosen people. And they mean those living in Israel today. However, the Bible clearly doesn't teach that. What we've seen in the last two chapters goes against this and what we will be seeing coming up contradicts that as well. There are those Jews that embrace the Messiah today who are God's chosen people, right? But they're no different than the Gentiles that embrace the Messiah. The key is not a people, but a person. Who are God's chosen people? Those he chose in him before the foundation of the world, whether Jew or Gentile. That's God's chosen people. Those who believe upon the risen Messiah, Jesus. So when Paul here asks, has God cast away his people? He has already qualified his people in the past previous two chapters, has he not? Those in Christ are his people. Now he is dealing with Israelites here, though, right? He's still dealing with the Israelites. God has not cast away every Israelite is to Paul's, the point that Paul is making. And Paul can look in the mirror and say those words. Because he was an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. He had the lineage. He was of God's co- covenant people of old. Yet he wasn't actually in covenant with God until that road to Damascus, right? Right? When God blinded him and Christ appeared to him. That's the difference between actually being his people and just being called his people. Many people called the Israelites the people of God, but not all of them were the people of God. And that's what Paul has clearly taught us in Romans chapter 9. Nobody that rejects the Messiah can be called the people of God. We know this from John actually in the book of John, he said, or the first first book of first John, if one rejects the Messiah, John calls him an Antichrist. If the Messiah comes onto the scene and you say Jesus is not the Messiah, that the Messiah has not come in flesh, you are Antichrist. Which means against Christ. And what did Jesus say about that? He that is not with me is against me. So this is quite easy to know if someone is considered a people of God or a child of God. What have they done with Christ? Have they embraced him or rejected him? If they rejected him, they are not the people of God, whether they're Jew or Gentile. By the grace of God, the Apostle Paul can say that he is, though. He was killing Christians. Because he believed they would be heretics, right? And they deserved to die. Yet God in His mercy saved Paul and used him to advance his kingdom mightily in that first century. And Paul says of himself, He was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. He was an unbeliever. He was persecuting the church and he was an unbeliever. But he was of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees. But Paul says, in that time I was an unbeliever. And he says, everything I had at that time, I count but dung to gain the knowledge of Christ. So Paul has and will continue to use Old Testament Scripture to drive this point home to to us and to to the early church there at Rome. But in this moment, he simply says, look at me. I'm an Israelite. I am from Abraham and of the tribe of Benjamin, and I'm not cast off. I should have been, but God has been merciful to me, a Jew. Therefore, God has not cast away His people. Let's move on to our next point here. God's foreknown people. The first point is God's people. This is God's foreknown people. So moving on to to verse 2 here, he says, God hath not cast away His people which he foreknew. We see that Paul adds to the answer to the question as well, right? He adds to it. If it's God has not cast away his people, which he foreknew. So we can clearly say that this here, there, it's a certain people, right? That God foreknew. We can say it's not everybody, but a certain group. He has not cast off the people that whom He foreknew, which makes it a certain people group. And this isn't the first time we've seen this word used in Romans. Remember back in Romans 8, 29, he says, For whom He did foreknow, He did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And I don't believe the word changes meanings. It means the same thing right here. When it says foreknow... It doesn't simply mean that God knows something. I mean, basic, simple Christianity is that God is omniscient. That he knows everything, right? So it's not simply saying God knew something about these people or knows everything about these people. Because if that's the meaning, that doesn't separate them from anybody else. Because he for, if, you, if you have that meaning for the word foreknow, as if he just knows something about that piece, person or everything about that person, it doesn't separate them from this group. And he says, God has not cast away the people whom he foreknew. There's not one group he foreknows and not another. It's also not dealing with actions. I know people who say, well, see, he foreknew that you would have faith. That's not what the text says. That's not what it says in Romans 8 either. It's not, he doesn't foreknow something about you. It's that he foreknows the people. It wasn't about the actions, but about the person. It's not that he foreknows about them and their choices. It's them. The word in the original is a compound word pro prognosco. Um, pro or pra means in front of or before. And gnosko means to know. Now, I will add to that, it's not simply to have an intellectual knowledge of something. Though The the word gnosko can mean that, but it means more than that. It's to know it intimately. One of the definitions of the words, and this is from the Thayer's Greek, Greek dictionary, it says a Jewish idiom used for sexual intercourse between a man and a woman. So it's more than just an idea, right? It's intimate knowledge. Jesus actually used the same word, gnosko, in Matthew chapter 7. I'm sure you all are familiar with it. When he says the, to the workers of iniquities, what did he say to them? I never knew you. Now, now we can think for a second, well, we can't, we shouldn't think for a second, that Jesus is literally saying, I have no clue who you are. Where did you come from? I didn't even know you existed. I never knew you. That's not what he means. In the words of Peter, Peter says to the Lord, Thou knowest all things. Jesus is omniscient. What he is saying in Matthew 7 is depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never had an intimate relationship with you. Or to put it simply, I never loved you. It's the same word that's actually used in Matthew one twenty-five as well. You know Matthew 1, right there, it's dealing with the birth of Christ. It says in Matthew 1.25 that Joseph knew not his wife until after the birth of her son. Did that mean that he's like, Mary? I don't know who Mary is. No! They were, they were engaged to one another already. He knew who she was. It means he did not have that intimate relationship with her until after the birth of Jesus. And that's what this is saying in Romans 11 too. God has not cast away his people. I think it'd be better to say it like this, that he loved. He has not cast away his people whom he loved. And I think it goes, connects clearly to Romans chapter 8 and verses 38 and 39, right? That nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, and God has not cast away those whom he foreloved. And in our context, Paul is dealing with those within the nation of Israel. That's what he's been dealing with. And he says, within the nation of Israel, there's a people that God foreknew, that God loved, and he will not cast them people away. And he goes on to prove this again from Scripture, which is our last point here. God's reserved people. In verses really 2 through 4, it says, uh, God has not cast away his people which he foreknew. I'm going to say this in plain English instead of uh, King James. He says, Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he makes intercession to God against Israel, saying, "Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. but what says the scripture what says the answer of God unto him, I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal, God's reserved people, so it's more than just an idea, but it's an intimate knowledge here that God has for his people and let's let's see something here from this text that we might miss if we just read this sometimes you might miss this Elijah makes intercession to God notice what it says in verse 2 how he makes intercession to God against Israel this is a prophet of God within the nation of Israel, and it says he makes intercession to God against Israel. It wasn't for Israel. He wasn't making intercession for Israel, but he was making intercession against Israel. It was against them because they were going after strange gods. They were chasing after idols. And in the context, they had bowed the knee to Baal. So he's interceding for the people because they had bowed the knee to Baal. They had went after a strange God And he prays against them. Does this sound familiar? Paul has already used Hosea and Gomer to display the same thing, right? About the same people. That they went after strange gods. And as we've seen recently, this was the main ministry of the prophets. It was them telling the Israelites to leave their idolatry and turn back to God. And then, when even, they're saying in my notes, but even when John the Baptist came on the scene, what was John the Baptist preaching? Repent! Why? Because they had gone after strange gods. Because they had forsaken the God of the covenant. And they created all these laws that you had to follow. Follow these laws. I, with those 613, let's add a whole bunch more onto that. And John the Baptist, the last prophet, says, repent. Turn to the living God. Look unto Jesus. So that was the prophet's main ministry, and their their lives were spent in preaching it, literally. Like they it wasn't just that they they spent hours upon their lives preaching repent to Israel, it was that their lives were taken from them because they were preaching that. Because they were going to a religious people and telling them you're not right with God. Just because you go to the temple, just because you pay your tithes, just because you do all these things, you're not right with God. You need to repent. And the people killed him because of it. As Elijah actually says right here in verse 3, Lord, they have killed thy prophets. Talking about Israel. Elijah says, Lord, they, Israel, the nation of Israel have killed your prophets. And we have saw this recently. We saw it in Matthew 23. I think it was last week. That they killed the prophets. And listen to Elijah's complaint. He says, he is left alone. I'm all alone, and they seek my life. They killed your prophets, and now I'm preaching to them, and I'm alone, God. Guess what, though? He wasn't alone. He felt like he was alone, but he was not alone. And I think Paul could probably say something very similar, could he not? When he was going into the synagogues to preach the gospel to the Jews, and all of them were rejecting him, he could have been like, God, I'm alone, and they seek my life. But what was Paul's answer, or God's answer to Elijah here? And I believe to Paul, and I believe to us, by extension as well, if we feel like that. Verse 4. But what says the answer of God unto them? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. So much for being alone, right? I'm alone. Elijah, there's 7,000 others. And notice what it says. I have reserved. That's God speaking. I have reserved them. There is a remnant. And I know in the next verse in verse 5, it it deals with it. I don't want to jump into it, but at least look at it right there in verse 5. It says, even so then, at this present time also there is a remnant. There was a remnant then in Elijah's day, 7,000. There was a remnant when Paul was writing this. And why was there a remnant? Because God had reserved for himself. It doesn't say there's 7,000 men who chose to be faithful to me. It was, I have reserved these people for my own sake. I have kept them from idolatry. God had reserved them. The idea is that God keeps his people. This, remember, is Paul's driving force through the last few chapters. Remember, I I brought it up, I don't know how many times now. God is a covenant keeping God. He makes a covenant with you, He keeps you. He doesn't lose you. If the question is, if nothing can separate us from the love of God, then why are the Jews being separated? The answer is, they were not the people of God. They were not in the love of God. God does not cast away his people who he foreknows, but reserves them not to go after strange gods. That's what the text, I think we can clearly see that from the text, right? God keeps his people, he keeps them from going after strange gods and bowing the knee to Baal. So we can't look in the mirror and say, I'm glad. I'm so glad I'm doing this. I'm so glad that I'm not like that person. And know what the Pharisees were like, right? I'm so glad I'm not like this sinner over here tax collector. We can rest in the sovereignty of God that he would have mercy on us and be gracious to us. And even in the worst of times, God has a people. Guess what? There were 7,000 people (laughs) there with Elijah. 7,000. How many Christians do you think are on earth today? Way more than 7,000. And it would do us well to remember this, that God has a people and He keeps His people even in the worst of times. Though I believe we are far from the worst of times here today. I'd actually argue we're closer to the best of times so far in earth's history. But it's a long discussion for another time. But even in our little bubble in history where we can see the name of Christ being blasphemed by those that call themselves Christians, we can see those that hate Christ being able to speak openly in the most blasphemous ways about Him. We can see a church, if you will, on every corner and yet the gospel not being preached. We can see, as me and Ben were speaking before this uh, service started before anybody got here. He had mentioned that you know, he had been to a few other churches and he'd never seen anybody going out sharing the gospel. We can easily look at our circumstances around us and think, I'm left alone. I'm alone, God. However, God has reserved for himself a people that have not bowed the knees, and you have to forgive me for this, they might not make it on YouTube, but have not bowed the knees to progressive Christianity, who have not bowed the knees to wokeness, who have not bowed the knees to the current cultural trends that we have going on. There have been and always will be a people of God who declare his gospel and worship him even in the midst of turmoil. We can read about that. Grab yourself to Fox's Book of Martyrs. Read about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. <laughs> he probably could have said, I'm alone. But guess what? God had a remnant. What about Martin Luther? You think for a second he wasn't thinking, I'm alone. You guys are all crazy. How could you not see this from the text? The just shall live by faith. But he wasn't alone. there have been and always will be a people of God. So let's to bring it back to the text. Even though in that first century, God had rejected the nation of Israel, but he has reserved for himself a remnant. Even then, this is what Paul is saying, even now there's a remnant. And Paul was an example of it. And the other apostles as well. The Jews that did not bow the knee to Rome, if you will. They weren't bowing the knee to Baal because Baal wasn't around anymore. He was a fake god anyway, so he got destroyed and he disappeared. This is what happens to all fake gods, right? They come up for a time, and people worship this totem pole or whatever it is, and then it gets chopped down and it's gone. Me and Jonathan talked about Dagon the other day. It gets chopped up, it's gone. Dagon don't exist anymore. Tell, tell me, go around the corner, and see if you find Dagon worshipers. They don't exist because he was a fake god. So Baal doesn't exist anymore, but Rome was there. And the Jews bowed the knee to Rome. The ones Elijah was dealing with bowed the knees to Baal, the ones Paul was dealing with bowed the knees to Rome. And the Apostle John also deals with this in his revelation. Jerusalem was the harlot sitting upon the beast. The beast being Rome. And John calls Jerusalem Babylon the Great. <laughs> of all people, you call in Jerusalem the Babylon the Great. He says that she is the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. They forsook the covenant and they bowed the knee to Rome. And we can see that in the crucifixion of our Lord, right? Crucified on a Roman cross. They delivered him up to Rome to be crucified. Their Messiah, their long-awaited Messiah, they delivered him up to Rome. They forsook the covenant. But fortunately, there were still some reserves by God for himself. So we can cl- conclude this doctrinal portion of the message, hopefully with hope. To answer the question of the Jew... Yes, they forsook the covenant, and God rejected that nation. However, God has still reserved the people for himself. He has called them out of that nation and into the church, right? Into the holy nation and a royal priesthood. And still today, God still has a people and will continue to have a people from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. So take heart, Christian. God is not finished. You are not left alone, and he will not cast away his people which you are if you're in Christ this morning. So let's move on to our application I right here. A call to faith and repentance. Let me take a drink. To the person in here that does not know Christ. And you're like, Jeremy, you'll do this every Sunday. Yes, and I will. And I'll continue. Because I never know who's going to be here and i don't take for granted that every single person knows Christ. To the unbeliever, I mentioned this, but I did not expound on him. I said it's quite easy to know if someone is considered a people of God or child of God. What have they done with Christ? Have they em- re- embraced him or rejected him? This is for you, if you haven't embraced Christ. By that I mean, if you haven't believed on Him and His finished work. If you sit here today and do not know Christ. If you don't know about His perfect work of keeping the law that you can't keep. And I can't keep. If you haven't seen the fact that He went to a Roman cross and died for the sins of His people. If you haven't believed on Him who rose from the dead three days later and ascended to the right hand of His Father. I implore you today to believe upon Him. Don't look to yourself or your works because God requires perfection and He won't lower His standards for you. He has provided perfection in His Son and your call this morning is to repent of your sins and believe upon Him. Now to us believers here, I know this all too well about us. Especially about us Reformed brethren. We, like Elijah, say, I am left alone. I'm all alone. We think we have this corner of truth and nobody else has it, right? We think, oh, the church is in such a bad state. Repent, church. I say let us repent of that kind of thinking. The church, the true church, is in great shape. You know why? Because God keeps His people. Because God causes us to obey Him. Because we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works which He ordained beforehand that we should walk in them. But how can you say that, Jeremy? I look out and and see what they follow after, right? I hear the blasphemy that comes from the pulpits across America. But I would argue that those are not the church. That's the false church. They are not the people of God. They have gone astray. But let me say that God promises to keep a remnant for Himself not only in that first century but now too. So you think He's going to do less now? I'd argue that He does more. That He's done more. Since Jesus said the Kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Y'all remember that little parable picture that He gives us? The Kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. How big is a mustard seed? Jesus tells us it's one of the smallest seeds. And what happens when that kingdom gets planted it grows into a giant tree what happens when the in that same portion of scripture there he says the kingdom of god is like leaven and it gets put into the lump and it leavens the whole lump it takes over he had a small remnant there in that first century and it's continually growing into a giant tree just like i've already mentioned in elijah there were seven thousand imagine If there's only 7,000 Christians on earth, I don't, none of us really know how many there are, but there's millions. Not 7,000. God has a people still. We are not left alone, and we ought to get out of that type of thinking. There are actually reform networks popping up all over the place. Not just in America either. I know that's our focus, right? How's Christianity doing? Look at America. No. Reformed churches are popping up all over the place. Reformed networks are popping up all over the place. God is not just reserving a people, but He's growing a people as He has promised. You can't be left alone. And God has a people in every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. The gospel is going forth. The the the. Those ideas contradict one another. You being left alone and God having a people in every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. They don't go together. God is expanding His kingdom and will continue to do so. And what's awesome about that is He's using us to do it. God doesn't write the gospel message in the clouds. People don't just walk outside and look up at the clouds and it has the gospel message written in the clouds. You know what He does? He uses His people. He's giving you the message. He's giving me the message, and He's giving us a mouth to preach the message. He uses His people who are not left alone to take the gospel message to the ends of the earth. And if He uses us, listen, if He uses us to take the gospel message to the ends of the earth, do you think for a second He's not saving people? I mean, wasn't the promise of the Father to the Son in Psalm 2, ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thy inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. So we can rest assured that this is going to happen. He's going to save people. God has elect all over the earth. Now they may not be converted yet. But they are still his sheep and they still will hear his voice. So you're not alone. And I actually think Sometimes it can be prideful to think that. I'm just alone. Nobody knows what I know. Let's repent of that thinking and praise God for saving His people all over the earth. And let's move forward believing the promises of God that His kingdom will not end and that it shall expand unto the ends of the earth. Our call to war here is kind of just piggyback off the last point. And almost as always, you all probably know right where I'm going with it. God has people all over the earth, and He has elect that haven't heard the gospel yet and believed. He uses us to take the message to them. So let's, as His people, press on with that message. Let's think of more ways to get the message out. And don't take this the wrong way. I don't mean other than preaching. That's how the gospel message is taken out to the world is through preaching. We saw that just in the last chapter, right? How shall they hear without a preacher? So there's a message that must be heard. So it has to come out of your mouth. But the, the, what I'm saying is, I mean venues, different venues you can use to put forth that gospel message. What venues can we use to get the gospel out? We can stand on a street corner and preach, right? We can hand out tracts, right? We can go door-to-door with the gospel message. Guess what? It doesn't take any. Those three things right there, all it takes is you getting up and doing it. Right? Any one of us, I would never suggest a, a lady to go door-to-door by herself for obvious reasons, I think, but I could wake up tomorrow and just go door-to-door knocking on doors. I'd always suggest having have another partner with you anyways, but Especially the other way. So we can, we, I don't need, you don't need money to do that, right? I, I forgot to put a speaker on, but you, you may buy a speaker. You don't need one, do you? Whitfield, what kind of speaker do you have? Bose, surround sound. We we can do that without any money, without anything apart from our lips and the gospel message. And heretics do this. Shall they do more than us? Shall the heretics take their false gospel door-to-door and we not take the real gospel door-to-door? We have all the different social media, right? Facebook, YouTube, Twitter... Instagram, I'm, I wouldn't suggest TikTok, but if you can have somebody else create a TikTok account and just send them videos to post. But we have all those. What are we doing with that? Posting videos of our children, of our food, of our animals. There's nothing wrong with that. But should we not use it to preach the gospel? Which one's more important? let me let me ask you this do you think there's anybody in the world who hasn't heard of Walmart that's like where are you going with this Jeremy do you think there's anybody in the world who's never heard of Walmart huh does Walmart have the life-giving message of Jesus Christ of course they don't shall Sam Walton have a louder voice than the church God forbid Brethren, our main ministry in this life, this is what we exist for, is to advance God's kingdom. You're like, well, I'm not called to be a pastor. That's not what that means. That's part of it, but that's not what that means. We're all called to advance God's kingdom. And now that does not also mean that I need to sell everything I have and go move to China. I know there's people that have done that. Uh, Hudson Taylor. There's nothing wrong with that, but that doesn't mean that's what you're called to do. That may mean I have little children in the house that I need to nourish and admonish in the Lord. That may mean I work somewhere and I'm surrounded by people that don't know the Lord. I know a lot of times now we we work from home for the most part, but when we're out are we talking about the Lord? That may mean I live in a house full of people that don't know the Lord. We all know people that don't know Him and our mission is to take the message, the life-giving message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you prepared to do this? And when I say, are you prepared to do this? Do you prepare your mind to do this? If I... If somebody were laying down dying right now in front of you and said, what must I do to be saved? Are you able to preach the gospel to them? We all should be able to do that. We ought to be prepared to do that and ready at any moment to preach the gospel to the lost. It tells us to be ready in season and out of season. It's not talking about football season. It's talking about all of life. And we ought to use our time and resources in it as well. That's what God's given you time and resources for. And I pray this morning that we are involved in this. I can guarantee you this. You will never regret spending more time and resources in the advancement of God's kingdom. I can name you a million things you'd regret. That's one thing you will never regret. That I I can't believe I spent this much time preaching the gospel today. I can't believe I I spent 3 hours a day preaching the gospel. I never heard anybody say that. And I know from experience you'll regret times that you know you should have and you didn't. You you you'll regret times when you say when you see this person walking and you just get this impression this hard impression upon you that I need to go preach the gospel to them and then you suppress it and go home at night and you can't sleep that night. I've never regretted actually just going to the person and preaching to them. Brethren, I don't know how long I have here and you don't know how long you have here and I don't know how long you have here. But let's spend our time working for the kingdom For the advancement of God's kingdom. And for the glory of His name. Amen.